0: Welcome back to The Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Daftari. Lots to unpack this week. And depending on which media outlets you're following, you're hearing very different news coming out of Israel. Uh, the protests going on there now uh, for a few months, getting uh, more heated, uh, President Biden chiming in, many, many um, foreign leaders chiming in to domestic affairs going on in Israel. But what really is happening there? I'm calling on my good friend and and honestly the most the foremost expert in uh, the world on this topic. I know he's very, very busy because everyone's calling on him to really unpack what's going on over there on the ground. Eugene Kontorovich, welcome to the program, my good friend. Eugene is not only a law professor at uh, George Mason Scalia School of Law, he's also the director of its Center for International Law in the Middle East. Uh, He's also the head of International Law Department at Kohelet Policy Forum, that's a Jerusalem-based think tank. He's recognized as one of the world's preeminent experts on international law and the Israeli-Arab conflict. He's taught for more than a decade at Northwestern. He's a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal, and he's testified repeatedly uh, in Congress. He, You can see him all over media, again, depending on which media outlets you are uh, looking at these days, but he is uh, quoted very, very often, and I know he's very, very busy. So thank you for your time, Eugene, and welcome to the program.
1: Lisa, thank you for, so much for having me on. I'm also a huge admirer, and I love the show.
0: Thank you. Um, Eugene, for, for somebody who has not been following what's going on, can you give us the Cliff Notes version of what is exactly happening on the streets of Israel right now?
1: Well, I think if someone came from Mars and uh, was to be given the Cliff Notes version, uh, they wouldn't believe it. So Israel does not have a written constitution. And uh, instead, like most uh, mo- systems modeled on Great Britain, it has, at least on paper, what's called a system of parliamentary sovereignty. In other words, the parliament, which represents the people who are ultimately sovereign, Uh, gets the last word. Uh, Now, the Supreme Court in 1995, the Israeli Supreme Court, uh, launched a process that they themselves called a revolution against popular and parliamentary sovereignty and seized all sorts of powers for themselves. They took the power of judicial review, which in America exists because there is a written constitution, and they claimed the power to strike down laws of the Knesset that they disagreed with. Then they went even farther and they claimed the power to uh, stop any government action, even including who to appoint to the cabinet, where to draw the borders, uh, what the refugee quotas should be from other countries, that they could strike those down uh, if they simply disagreed with them and thought that they were just not uh, prop, did not balance the interests of different groups in society. Then they went even further and they said that the Attorney General. So the Supreme Court, by the way, does not act like what you would think of as a court. It sits, um, it does not hear cases from appeals. People go directly to the Supreme Court. You don't need to claim that you're hurt or in any way injured by a government action. You could just say, you disagree. You think the government misunderstands what the law is. And you can appear before the Supreme Court with no fact finding, no evidence. It just hears sort of policy arguments from both sides and can decide what to do. It then decided that the attorney general who is basically um, more beholden to the court than to the government, can strike down any government policy simply by saying so. So whenever the government has an idea that the attorney general doesn't like, uh, even including who to appoint to different jobs, uh, he can just say it's problematic and it's over. In other words, the court and the officials uh, empowered by the court have an absolute stranglehold over Israeli democratic processes, but it, it didn't stop there. The court went on to say that they can even strike down attempted amendments at the Constitution or um, provisions, uh, you know, they, they invented a constitution. They said certain laws have constitutional status. But if you amend them, we can also strike down the amendment. And to make matters worse, they have now claimed the ability to fire the prime minister. And they themselves, and this is crucial, are not picked by the government. The judges control the appointments of the judges. So what happened is, eventually, uh, the um, government got tired of this, and uh, the people got tired of this, and there is now an attempt to make the court at least somewhat accountable to the public to introduce at least some checks and balances on the court. Mm. Now, it's also the case, uh, as people around the world know, no one who has um, absolute unchecked power gives it up easily, and that is what we are seeing now.
0: So, I mean, if it's a matter of checks and balances, why are some of the reports out there? Um, I I contacted you this week because I was on a show and they asked me, um, is it true that one of the reforms is that Christians can't practice Christianity anymore? And I heard, you know, on another news program, one of the reforms will be that Palestinians no longer can live in Israel. I mean, there are so many, um, you know, there's so much, you know, abduction of the narrative here. Um, You know, how did we get here?
1: Um, that's a good question, but I think, uh, I think it's important to say the Supreme Court is, uh, I think, uh, almost universally regarded of having a political leaning, uh, in particular it leans to the left. Mm-hmm. And unlike in America where we have some liberal Supreme Court judges um, of great note and you have some conservative Supreme Court judges of, of great note, because the court picks its own members, There's really, uh, there's a monoculture, uh, an orthodoxy, there's a lack of different viewpoints. They obviously Mm -hmm. pick successors who look like them, who agree with them. Um, There's um, overwhelmingly underrepresented uh, Sephardi Jews or Jews from Mm -hmm. Arab countries, uh, basically almost entirely entirely absent on the Supreme Court. And as a result, the people who benefit from this status quo, uh, Mm -hmm. which is uh, principally the establishment on the left, have a huge interest in doing whatever they can to perpetuate it. So apart from a huge amount of misleading media narratives, they've also shut the airport and closed hospitals and Mm -hmm. encouraged disobedience or refusal to serve in the military um, to try to uh, derail the reforms. So never before have we seen such a uh, sort of broad set of actions designed to actually weaken the country, not just weaken the government uh, in response to policies uh, that you disagree with
0: right and so just to summarize basically what's going on is um wanting to bring more democracy right to to the country having checks and balances but yet the left realizes that they're going to lose their monopoly over uh legislative issues and therefore now like you said closing hospitals closing uh airports you know going on strike basically to to stop this from going forward uh, now you know, let's connect this. I want to I move away from Israel and, and look at the, the U.S.'s involvement in all of this and then move back to to uh, Israel and, and what can be done there. And want to talk about the details on the ground. The reason I want to come to the United States is I want to get point blank your answer on this. What, if any, differences will this make in the relationship or the foreign policy between the United States and Israel?
1: Um, This is not really about foreign policy. I mean, it's true the Supreme Court now also says it can veto foreign policy. But this is essentially a domestic issue, which, frankly, nobody outside of Israel should notice. Uh, Just to make it very clear, the the Supreme Court in Israel did not have the powers that it has since seized until 1995. So if you think Israel was a uh, democracy under Prime Minister Rabin, uh, under uh, Golda Meir, it's certainly gonna be a democracy after these reforms, which don't even turn the clock all the way back to 1995, but just introduce some minimal checks. So if the United States was not objecting to Israel not being a democracy or the Supreme Court having not enough power in 1995, which it wasn't, there's no reason for them to get involved now. And on the other hand, President Biden has gotten involved. right? Uh, and it's a bit absurd because President Biden has come out and really challenged these reforms. Mm-hmm. Whereas at the same time, uh, just recently, he proposed packing the United States Supreme Court, which would actually give him almost complete power over every decision in the court by just adding as many judges as he could need to get a majority. Now, um, I happen to not think court packing in America is unconstitutional. Certainly, President Biden doesn't think so. Um, and if he almost you know, wanted to take over the U.S. Supreme Court uh, and that was not undemocratic, certainly at least having the judges not pick themselves in Israel. Uh, Should not be undemocratic. So we see it's not about democracy. uh, It's not about uh, shared values. Um, President Biden is intervening in a heated domestic political context to prop up one side in that contest. And unfortunately, um, it's the side that wants to perpetuate the uh, undemocratic powers of judges.
0: You know, and this is it's interesting because we knew we knew that President Obama got involved in in the uh, stop trying to attempting to stop the uh, re-election of of Bibi Netanyahu. And now we're watching, you know, as many say, the Biden foreign policy being the 2.0 of the Obama foreign policy. According to many, there are many similarities there. And then, you know, seeing this involvement as Kamala Harris and, and President Biden have both told Bibi and warned him not to continue Quote, going down this path, whatever that means, and um, and 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 getting involved, where you have you know individuals like Nikki Haley and others on the right in this country connecting with Israel's right. I mean, what does this mean, or will this have any effect on the foreign policy between the two countries going forward?
1: Uh, so first of all, I want to say that uh, what President Biden's doing goes much further than what President Obama did. President Obama tried to get you know in, in, involved in one election to make the people he win. He liked win over the people he didn't like, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, Biden is getting involved in issues that really get to the heart of Israel's constitutional system. You know, Biden wants to, you know, basically uh, perpetuate a system which would make elections in general matter far less and give power to unelected officials. So that goes beyond the results of any one election. He's trying to say even when a government is elected that uh, wants to introduce uh, changes in, into the power of the judiciary that should never be possible he basically wants to be the uh, undemocratic alexander hamilton of israel <laughs> to mm-hmm. write israel's constitution for it, and that's quite shocking um it shouldn't interfere with israel's fought, with, with the uh, uh mutual relations between the jews because the two countries have such strong mutual interests such a shared history truly shared judeo-christian values but at the same time it most likely will because i think we uh see the president biden is likely to take, um, is likely to try to uh, retaliate against Israel to punish uh, Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu. We just saw reports just before I went on, uh, Israeli space scientist was going to appear at a a NASA conference, and his participation uh, was canceled, apparently, by the United States. So even shared security interests are going to be harmed, um, I'm afraid, by the Biden administration.
0: This it's it's absolutely absurd when you think about it, that that Israel would be punished for domestic issues that have nothing to do with uh, its foreign policy with the United States. You know, that frankly hasn't changed uh, for decades. But yet each time there's a new guy or perhaps in the future, a woman in the White House, uh, that that relationship comes under you know question. But I want to tie this into just you know global global perspective and and the narrative here you know you have um you know irresponsible journalists like mehdi hassan at the uh, at msnbc peter barner at the the new york times who have come to twitter and, and in their writings and on air um try to connect very, very uh, irresponsibly and very falsely, try to connect this with what what's going on between the Palestinians um, and the Israelis in the Holy Land, and and tried to say, well, if the the Jews were better to the Palestinians, you'd have more democracy there, or there wouldn't be apartheid there. Rashida Talib also putting up, you know, taking advantage of this time to perpetuate these lies and when you have from the White House this disinvitation or or not putting an invitation to Bibi Netanyahu, trying to create that distance in order to perpetuate these false narratives. I mean, how do we fix this?
1: How do we fix it? Um, I think, first of all, uh, one needs to be properly cynical. Uh, And this is why it's so useful about, uh, you know, to have uh, serious news programs you know, not on, uh, on, on channels, uh, much like yours. We need to be appropriately cynical about what we read and what we see. And, I, you know, I've encountered it now just time of, after time. Uh, you know, people have certain misconceptions. I said, where'd you, where'd, you, where'd you see that? Where'd you get that from? I read it in the newspaper, so it must be true. Um, you know, one needs to really, I think, learn how to analyze uh, sources and analyze reporting to see if it's based on uh, actual sources. Everyone needs to do that for themselves. Um, and uh, the amount of uh, misinformation is uh, extremely serious. And if only it was Maxi Hassan and Terebena, but it's also much more uh, mainstream. Um. Right, right. So one, one needs to be able to evaluate the facts oneself. One needs to learn how to do that.
0: You know, I want to um, go go back to Israel because obviously we, um, we we can't solve the mainstream media's issues and that um, they're biased. Uh, or, or the left's bias in this country. We obviously have elected officials in Congress who are there with the uh, priority of, of bashing Israel, not promoting the United States. And, 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 we, know that, and, and we know that they're there and, and they, they make no qualms about it because they, they don't have to make any qualms about it. Um, you recently, I think yesterday, had a, a piece in the uh, New York Post uh, together with uh, Ariel Davidson, another good friend of ours. Um, and you write, uh, well, the, the title being Israel's protesters are enemies, not heroes of democracy. Um, you end the piece by saying what's unfolding in Israel is not a BB problem, it's a democracy problem, and those portraying themselves as heroes of democracy may actually be hurting it. Can you speak a bit about that?
1: Yeah, so first of all, the headline uh, I did not write, and I don't regard the protesters themselves as being enemies of democracy. As a matter of fact, I think the protests, in a, fa- in a sense, contradict the main argument of the protesters, which is that Israel does not have enough democratic checks, that it's too easy for the legislature to get things passed. We see the Israeli public are not like sleeping sheep uh, the government can walk all over. Uh, There's a mobilized, strong civil society. Um, At the same time, the political leaders of the protest movement, uh, and politicians like Yair Lapid, are um, essentially trying to uh, solidify a system that makes the results of popular elections really not matter so much, because if the left wins, they can implement their policies, as it should be, that's democracy. If the right wins, the attorney general gets to tell them not to implement their policies. That's a fundamental problem with democracy. And if, right, if there's no way to change it, so this is a crucial point. The current system in Israel was not decided upon by the people, it was not decided on by the Knesset, it was never decided on at all. The court just made it happen. uh with the support of government elites and bureaucracies if that system which was never accepted by the people is now locked in stone and you can't even talk about small changes to it as the government is trying to do um you know if the protests basically mean you know meet your meet your new leaders you're stuck with them forever you know the judges of the supreme court uh who most people couldn't name um then that's a that's a crisis for Israeli democracy and I want to say, in, in America, what reason America is such a robust democracy is even when the court does decide things that people think are illegitimate. So the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in the 70s. A lot of people thought it was a horrible decision, right, that like really put human life in jeopardy. They don't need to take to the streets. They don't need to shut the airport and the hospital. They can participate in the political process. They can convince people. They can elect politicians who then, then will put in uh, new judges in vacancies who can eventually change the opinion of the court. And now we have Dobbs and Dobbs uh, infringes on women's rights, hijacks a woman's body. You don't need to have a revolution. You can elect politicians who will make that perspective uh, eventually felt on the court, which yes. is why it's shocking that the reaction in Israel to simply the ability of politicians to pick judges for the Supreme Court is far more dramatic than uh, we saw the reaction to Dobbs and Roe versus Wade and court backing combined. Mm-hmm. And the reaction because right now there, you know, one political perspective doesn't have hope, right? They can win every election, right? Right. And they're never gonna get a majority on the Supreme Court.
0: You know, it's it's interesting because um you you talk about it not being a, a BB problem. And then for anyone who has been following politics in Israel, you know, it's very difficult to get a coalition. Most governments are either unable to or don't serve out the full term. There's a lot of turmoil with the current system. Um, And yet, BB continues to come back onto the scene. My point being, uh, regardless of these domestic issues, the issues of national security, which BB is very strong on, the, the issues of the borders, of the issues of keeping Israel safe, continue to be bipartisan. I mean, this is what's lost in the media, am I wrong?
1: No, that's a that's a uh, that's exactly right. Israel is a crucial security ally. Israel and the Israel American relationship is crucial, but you know I think one thing that is changing is Israel is an ally against American enemies in the region. Throughout the Cold War, it was at the forefront of the fight against communism. Um, it was an island of stability during the Arab Spring and the ISIS period, but now America's greatest strategic threat is from Iran, and uh, the Biden administration. Uh, does not seem particularly serious about confronting that problem. Um, and, you know, one theory is that the Biden administration wants to weaken BB now, weaken Prime Minister Netanyahu, because uh, he favors a strong policy on Iran, which would, you know, intrude with the uh, administration's uh, policy of basically leaving the region to itself.
0: So let me ask you this. Does, it, I see a lot of parallels here, right? Even during this conversation, you're confirming a lot of these parallels that I'm seeing between the United States and uh, and Israel, mainly in that does Israel's left not understand the larger issues here, meaning they are you know, a minority in, in, in the Middle East. They are um, obviously surrounded by their enemies. Obviously, national security is a huge issue that their enemies are watching and really enjoying what's going on inside Israel right now.
1: Okay, so uh, they are, uh, and it just shows you that uh, how you know that when we talk about the Supreme Court, we're not just talking about judges who decide some disputes. We're talking about what is essentially a supreme legislative council. So people are willing to do pretty you know extreme things uh, to perpetuate uh, power. Unfortunately, at the same time, I think you know the uh, you know. To the extent if Iran is watching this and enjoying it, I think their uh, pleasure is mistaken. I think fundamentally Israeli society remains strong. I think the military remains prepared to respond to uh, to any action. But of course, it is a completely uh, you know, needless diplomatic uh, distraction, um, but I wouldn't overstate its effect on uh, Israeli readiness, and I think any regional actor that would come to that conclusion would do so to their uh, to their detriment.
0: I want you to address um, some of the nuances within Israeli society. So, a lot of people who are watching this see this as a fight between secular and religious. Uh, some see it left and right. Some see it as Sephardic versus Ashkenazi. I mean, there are a lot of undercurrents in this small country, the size of the state of New Jersey, as we always say. Can you explain some of these cultural, um, you know, un- underpinnings that are that are? You know contributing to what's going
1: on in the protests uh sure so Israel uh is a country with a strong uh that was founded by socialist parties uh run by Jews from Europe uh Ashkenazim which is where they got the socialism uh and um it was run by basically the same coalition of lefty or socialist parties for uh 40 years um and so there are there are numerous fault lines and they don't completely map onto to this but basically, the uh, sort of original socialist uh, government founders of the country—they uh, created and even like directed with their children a kind of um, aristocracy, which uh, even as um, the right began to win, won elections, managed to still control important institutions in Israel: the universities, mm-hmm. uh, major government companies, certain big businesses. Um, and uh, of like course, the United States. Of course, the Supreme Court. Um, but Israel is a much more statist country, right? So uh, the the link between um, these major institutions and the government has often been closer. Uh, and there's this idea in Israel of uh, government bureaucrats have far more power. Uh, there's this idea that the point of government bureaucrats is not to implement the will of the people, but to uh, make sure the will of the people is not implemented if it's unreasonable. Uh, and these are the heads of the security forces. So while the population of Israel is very, uh, is very diverse, there is a more greater commonality of uh, of interest. But I think the principal divide here is just a left right divide, um, which which itself you know maps onto certain demographic things. But but that's that that is the main thing. Let me put this: currently, the Supreme Court right, has the leading role in selecting judges and. If Yair Lupide thought the Supreme Court was going to select right-wing judges, would he want to preserve their power to pick judges? Right? If Justice Scalia, if uh, Brett Kavanaugh was the chief judge of the Supreme Court, if you had the American Supreme Court in Israel, would your Lipi say, you know what? It's crucial that they be able to pick their successors. He'd say, no, we need to pick their successors. Um, so uh, you know, the, uh, that's not the case. Right? It's, it's, it's the opposite. So the. Uh, the left has a uh, basically vested interest in the current system because mm-hmm. they think it's overwhelmingly going to work to their benefit. If they didn't, they'd want to change the system.
0: So, okay, their benefit, but to be more specific. Let, you're obviously—I mean—you come from a conservative uh, viewpoint. You also live in Israel, so I want to make sure our audience understands that you're not just—you know you know, Monday morning quarterbacking this and, and looking at it from from the perspective of a law professor. You happen to have both pr- perspectives and you live in Israel, you understand the society, you understand what's going on in the legal system and, and all of that. You literally have a, a front view, front seat view of, of all of this in, in real time. Obviously you come from a conservative uh, a, a background and it's, it's in your bio. If you were on the left, what are you fearing right now?
1: Um, it's not even a matter... I wouldn't even say it's a matter of fear. Why are they on
0: the streets? Well, I mean, there's you watch these videos. And that's why Hamas and Hezbollah, are, they're enjoying these videos. You watch these videos. It's as if they're, they're they're crying, as if their life is depending on these reforms, which is why it's so easy for those who want to abduct the narrative they've been able to, right? I so think every, to to them.
1: If every time, you know, people who uh, you know, um, undemocratic regimes always invoke, you know, the threat of some, Danger to you know the right and security, the rights and security of their population in order to claim their power. Right. And what the defendants of the Supreme Court are saying is, these guys are going to do crazy things. They're going to cancel elections. They're going to put gays in jail. And basically, uh, they have a completely invented list of horrible consequences, which um,
0: which are being believed, which you are should... which
1: are just completely invented. And um, it's a powerful slogan, you know. In a sense, the pro- I'll tell you the real the, the, the tactical problem the reformists have, is the uh, opponents of reform come with fear. They're going to take away democracy. Mm -hmm. And the supporters of reform say, hey, we're going to introduce checks and balances. Can we tell you about the Federalist Papers, Montesquieu? We have some reforms to the system here. Things are going to be better. And it Mm -hmm. turns out that um, selling fear, um, regardless of how irrational, works politically better than uh, selling hope. Uh, and uh, sort of concrete, concrete policy proposals.
0: Uh, you know, it seems to me, I mean, again, more more of these parallels between the United States and Israel, but we're moving towards this society and generation of not being able to tolerate different opinions. And um, there's one, lastly, before you go, because I, I, I do, first, I want to get your opinion on, on what's going on inside Israel, how uh, this will pan out, um, you know, someone said to me the other day, I feel sorry for Bibi. He's stuck between two extremes, meaning his own party has gone uh, to the extreme right and he is obviously battling the extreme left. You know, how will this pan out? You know, will BB be at the helm or will his own, you know, again, parallels to Donald Trump, right? His own legal battles. So he's fighting so many different fronts. How do you think this will pan out for him?
1: I think we clearly see that a lot of the tactics of the opponents of reform, Um, basically it is the anti-Trump resistance movement, I think was literally put in a box and mailed to Israel. I think the best proof of that is the handmade costumes, suggesting there's going to be some kind of threat to abortion rights. Now, in Israel, there is no political controversy over abortion. It is not on the top 10 political issues, it's not on the top 100 issues, because it was never, unlike in America. Uh, you know, abortion issues were never set by the court. That was actually one thing they never touched. There's a, there was a, you know, there's a political compromise which is uncontroversial. It's not something even the most right-wing uh, politicians talk about. So, what's with the handmade costumes? I think, like, literally, they are either playing to the cameras to frighten Western audiences, or they just sent so, them from sent them from America.
0: Can so, I offer? Uh, can I offer perhaps a third? Yeah. What do you think about these? And I'm sorry to cut you off, but this is important. What do you think about the Biden administration giving government grants, funding to organizations, third-party organizations on the ground in Israel? They're basically paying for the opposition to to launch these protests.
1: So there has been uh, there has been evidence of uh, some money, uh, small sums that went directly from the State Department to the organizers of the pro- of the protest, which is shocking enough. Uh, The bigger question is how much money has gone sort of indirectly through third channels to the organizers. That's pretty shocking. But I think, you know, now we see the president going even further and sort of directly, personally intervening in one side of the conflict, not even uh, on one side of this uh, dispute about the powers of the Israeli Supreme Court and the selection of the judges, rather than being behind uh, the scenes. I think the goal is, in fact, to paralyze the uh, the government in a way similar uh, to the uh, anti-Trump resistance. Uh, the difference is, uh, you know, President, uh, Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu is a, a politician with, a broader appeal uh, than Donald Trump, as evidenced by the fact that he keeps winning election after election after election, and I think that is what might have uh, finally motivated the desperation of his opponents to take such extreme tactics. Um, mm-hmm. Because if you can't beat them at the polls, uh, you know, beat them by closing the streets. Um, so, uh, those, those are some similarities. Um, but in fact, you know, I think, uh, in, you know, I want to emphasize also the differences, uh, you know, in, um, in America, even when you don't have a right-wing government in power, you can have a Supreme court that leads to the right and vice versa. You can have a right-wing government and a left-wing Supreme court in, uh, Israel, only one of those configurations is possible. You can either have a left-wing government and a left-wing Supreme court. Or a left-right wing government and a left-wing spook war, and that is what you know. These reforms are attempting to change.
0: All right. You know, I want to get lastly because I know we're, we're running out of time. I can speak to you forever about this because you are just a wealth of information. Um, I want to get your thoughts on an incident that happened actually here in the United States uh, at Stanford Law School. And the reason I, I I want to get your thoughts on this is again showing this um, movement to really shut down the, the, the other side. Um, the Federalist Society at this law school invited Judge Kyle Duncan, he's a conservative judge on the US Court of Appeals Fifth Circuit to speak a nice invitation. Perhaps you don't agree with him. They literally shut down his speech. They were heckling. They were bullying. They were threatening him, um, hoping that he dies. He, he should, I mean, all of these awful things at a law school. These are future attorneys. They're not children. Um, and there were professors there who allowed this to happen. There were deans there that allowed this to happen. I mean, how did we get to a place? Whether, again, in Israel, as you said, I think there's a lot of ripple effects in this. But the reason I bring this up is, we're educating the the lawyers of the future, people who have the you know are responsible for you know learning different opinions, dissenting opinion, tolerating different opinions. And look at this
1: episode. Um, yeah. If I was a client uh, with a case in front of the Fifth Circuit, I would make very sure now that I don't have a Stanford Law School alumni right. uh, working on that. So you know, because yeah, remember. Lawyers are agents for their clients. They're responsible for their clients. And how are, how are they going to be able to faithfully represent their client in, uh, in front of this judge now? Um, there does seem to be some kind of growing uh, hysteria. I think in the case of, and I've, I speak often for the Federalist Society, um, I've never encountered. Uh, no, once at Chicago, actually, I was shouted down by uh, pro-Palestinian, as they call themselves, protesters. But I think part of this comes from uh, a broadening of the definition of harm. Harm used to mean punching someone in the face or damaging their stuff. Now, they have defined harm in a way to mean disagreeing with their views. Uh, and that, of course, is a recipe for being able to squash any kind of um, right. political dissent. But I wanna say the good news. Uh, the dean of uh, the law school, um, President uh, uh, Professor Jenny Martinez, <laughs> has since then written an amazing, amazing letter, which is, I think, really a document uh, uh, of great importance about okay. the freedom of speech um, and how the law school is going to stay out of these debates and crucially that you know don't look to the law school to hold your hand uh, in sensitive issues, meaning it's not the job of the law school to comment in every political development to right. them or support uh, and that speakers have to have a right to, to speak freely. So in a sense this crisis I think is, uh, is has uh, forced people, to confront how far out, how out of control the situation has gotten, and we see a um, we see m- mature, responsible adults uh, trying to actually um, take control of the situation for the benefit of free speech and open Right, state.
0: right. right. They should do better. And I and I hope that this will be a, 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 an example um, going forward for, for everyone to learn from. Um, Eugene, we will call on you again. Obviously, this is not enough time, but thank you for your for your expertise and thank you for your hard work on all of this. For those of you who'd like to follow Eugene and his brilliance, you can follow him on Twitter. He's got some amazing tweets, amazing articles, and I think he does post them often there. We will try to echo many of them there. For those of you who'd like to sign up for our daily uh, top 10 email, go to foreigndesknews.com. You can sign up there. And to sign up for our weekly podcast, you can get that at youtube.com slash lisa harry or wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you all next week.